The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. close out studying this important second chapter of Acts. It's about the church and about the very founding early days of the church. The first verse I read really has packed into it the main substance of what I want to say today, but let's listen to this description of the early church from Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's own word. The so-called mega church is a relatively new phenomenon on the American landscape. Basically, about the last 30 years is the time span in which churches that get that designation, and that usually means larger than 2,000 members, the mega church has come along and produced a whole new phenomenon. In many communities, many counties, certainly every major city center has a mega church, if not several. And this was not so one generation ago. What we find with these churches is that on a sprawling campus, there's a ministry center, quite often not named church at all. In fact, that has become the trend not to use that word. You'll see things like the rock, the shelter, the haven, Mars Hill, a whole string of names that are fine in and of themselves, but don't say that they're churches. You also don't see, most of the time, denominational names because it has been determined that people are turned off by denominational names. Oh, uh, that's Presbyterian. I can go have any part of that. And so we wouldn't present a marketing obstacle to anyone with the name Presbyterian. Doctrine, unfortunately, gets de-emphasized at many of these places at least because they would tell you, well, doctrine's controversial. It just people fight over unnecessary things. So we just kind of smooth it down and avoid that which is controversial. And in planning for worship and for ministry programs, the mega church often, quite deliberately, avoids any resemblance to what your grandparents or even your parents would have recognized as church. 
they were doing that, they'd say, good, that's what we're trying to do. We don't want people to think they're in church because that has negative connotations. Interesting how you find these places sometimes. They can almost resemble Christian shopping malls. I've seen coffee bars. I've seen a Tim Hortons donut franchise in the front lobby of a mega church. I've seen rock climbing walls. I've seen drama teams, exercise classes, gift shops. Sometimes I see God-honoring worship. It's not my intent here to lob hand grenades at the mega church. There are certainly those that are God-centered, Christ-centered, where the gospel is heard and the Bible is taught. But one of the problems we, we see today is the large trend, at least, that is seen and is very obvious, really, at many such places where the plan, the objective is be as big as we can be, reach as many as we can reach, And in order to do that, what we have to do is find out what makes Joe and Mary, unchurched person, tick. What would attract them? What would draw them? And what would turn them off? And then we will set a plan based on what will draw them in our doors in the hope, of course, that we can minister. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound bad. Aren't we supposed to to reach people? Indeed we are. The problem is that the marketing trend reaches into even what we teach and don't teach and how we are faithful to matters in Scripture all too often. If you're just trying to appeal to the widest possible group of people, that isn't real hard to do. You can figure that out. Just be inoffensive. Just say things that are appealing and entertaining, and you'll draw a crowd. But will that be a spiritually healthy church, a body of Christ, of the kind that God intended and he exhibited for us in his word. We see how in Acts, and we looked at the last couple of weeks in, the, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the response to it, how with this amazing sermon in which Peter raised several Old Testament texts and applied them to what God was doing in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit moved upon crowds of people and suddenly the church went from about 120 people to more than 3,000 all at once. I often find myself thinking about a meeting that must have happened among the apostles the next day, and they said, what do we do now? How do we deal with this? And I don't know whether they had that meeting or not, but they certainly moved forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.43 says the people who saw this, not only those who, who were affected directly, but those who observed it, were filled with awe at what happened. And it wasn't just numbers that caused the awe. Wow, look at that, 3,000 people. It wasn't only that. It was the sense that there was something powerful here, something that wasn't man-made, it wasn't programmed, it wasn't a marketing scheme. It was the power of God authentically displayed. And people were thrilled. And we, in churches, since that day, I think, have been looking back and asking and saying, hey, is there some way we can get that lightning into a bottle and open it up and pour it out on our churches and experience that same thing in our day today? How can our church be in some way like that one? 
I believe I can tell you that it won't be if our aim is just to be big. If our aim is just to draw in as many bodies and do the things that will draw bodies by any means that we can contrive. Listen to this. I think it's very important. Church growth, growth in size, always needs to be a byproduct of what's happening in a healthy church, not in and of itself the primary aim of any church. God brings growth when we are doing God-honoring things and seeking and obeying the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. You know, I, I meet with, and we're, we're into new members class again, a big class, and I've started meeting with the members, and many of you can remember being interviewed by me in that process. I always enjoy that, to start to see those lives, and I've noticed a trend in the last five years or more as we've gotten larger in size. I don't, people didn't ask me this 15 years ago. Now they do. They say, you know, I've never been part of a church as large as this. And I didn't ever think I would want to be part of a church as large as this. I, I remember one lady, she's, she's in heaven now. She joined here probably 10 years ago or more. Lovely lady, but, but she scolded me a little bit. She said at the end of the interview, she said, and, kind of, and she literally kind of wagged her finger at me. She said, you know, pastor, there's one thing wrong with this church. It's too big. And I wanted to say, well, then please don't join because you're, you're just going to exacerbate the problem and make it bigger. We are big. We don't begin to hit the definition of a megachurch. We've got a long, long ways to go before that. And I'm not striving for us to hit that. You know, I think if you scratched any young pastor, certainly pastors are ambitious, I hope, in a right way, not just selfish ambition, but ambitious to be effective in God's kingdom. And Certainly many, many pastors, if you could get beneath their, you know, required modesty and say, would you like to pastor a big church, would say, sure, lead me to it. Lead me to the job interview where I can be the big pastor. I suppose I felt that way once upon a time. Uh, You know what? I'm getting old enough and tired enough that I see that a big church involves an awful lot of work. And there's not so much glamour in it anymore. But I say to people who say, I'm not so sure about this big church. I say, you know what? We didn't get this way by seeking to be big. I think I can tell you truthfully, Westminster got the way we are by being biblically faithful and seeking to be faithful and be healthy in things that the Scripture describes. So I want to look at those things as they're in this Acts 2 text today, especially verse 42 but spilling out into the rest of this short text at the end of Acts 2. What vital signs should we see going on in an Acts 2 kind of church? And, and my points are, are spinning off of the idea that some have written about Acts 2 and called it the incendiary church. You know what that means? Burning. The church that's on fire. A church where the flame of the Holy Spirit is alive and bright, not a flame that destroys and, you know, turns the things into cinders and ashes, but a flame that gives warmth and that gives light and that refines people's lives into the image of Christ. Can we be an incendiary, healthy church? Let's see for a few minutes today. First of all, I think 
If we are, according to Acts 2.42, we, we must be a church that kindles hunger for God's Word. What does it say is the first thing that these early Christians devoted themselves to? The apostles' teaching. That's the English Standard Version. Others say the apostles' doctrine. Both accurate. They're speaking about the Word of God and the way in which, under the control of the Holy Spirit, these apostles went to the Old Testament, of which is, of course, the Bible that they had at that point, and developed out of the Old Testament the correct understanding that the Old Testament was prophetically pointing the way to Christ. That's what Peter did in his sermon that we've just studied. The texts from Joel, from Psalm 16, and Psalm 100, Peter was showing, look, your scriptures, the scriptures of the Jews of Israel, predicted Christ. He has come, he has died, he has risen, he has ascended. And when people saw that connection, boom, that heart attack of the Holy Spirit I talked about last week happened to them. They were struck down. They said, amazing. Look what we never saw before in the Word of God. And so now what were they doing? They were listening to the Word of God as the apostles continued to do exactly what Peter had been doing. Jesus had taught them, by the way, if you look at Luke 24 and see how in his resurrected state after the resurrection, he opened their minds to understand how the scriptures pointed to him. Well, that's what they were doing now, opening the minds of the people to show how the scriptures pointed to Christ. So the simple point is that God's word in Holy Scripture is the centerpiece of a healthy church. God's people are coming around that word. They're ready to devour that word, to know that word, to memorize it, to repeat it, to dissect it, and to apply it to themselves. Now, you can have the Bible as a centerpiece in a church in only a nominal and non-effective way. I've been in churches where they have huge pulpit Bibles on display, maybe on a stand in the front with the book open, and sometimes they make quite a ceremony about coming in and and opening the book, you know, and then when they leave, they go and they close the book, and you can see the symbolism of what that's trying to say. That's a good symbol, but it's not very helpful if that's the only way in which the Word of God is present in a worship service, and sometimes it is within those churches with those big Bibles, because they may read a text, but they never do anything with the text. The pastor, in response to the text, gives a nice little homily of some experiences, some stories, some inspirational quotes or something that might kind of weave around the general theme of a text and might not, and nobody's too worried if they do not. And they don't come hungry, devotedly, as these early Christians did, saying, what does God have to say? That's what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's to sit under the Word of God as an eager student. You know, I'll hear from musicians and I'll hear, well, this person studied piano for three years with James Smith, a great pianist. And if you're in music, you know who that person is and you're impressed because that person's a great teacher. Well, what is it to sit under the Word of God? It's not to sit in judgment upon it. It's not to cut it up in pieces. It's not to deride it and say that part doesn't apply to us anymore. It's not, well, those people just had a first century worldview and we can't accept what he's saying here in the 21st century. It's to sit under it 
and to let its teaching come to us as the master teacher to the inept student who's trying to learn. It's what we mean when we say that the sermons of a church should be expository sermons. Many of you have heard that term before, and it means to speak out of. It means to take out of the text what's there and to have the text form the outline and the conclusions and the material and the nitty-gritty, if you will, of what we have to say. Theologians use two big words in in, uh, studying the Bible that relate to that. One word is exegesis, to take the text apart and take out of it what's there. But there's another word that's not so good. It is eisegesis. That's looking at a text, coming to it, and dumping a dump truck load of your own viewpoints on it and saying, well, here's a text. I think it's about forgiveness. So here's what I think about forgiveness. That's eisegesis. And that's not what we're here to do. We're here to let the text shape us and speak to us in its detail, in its principles, in everything that forms it, you see. Because it's a divine word. And it's speaking to people with sinful minds and minds that are apart from God that need to be instructed and need to be reformed and need to be turned inside out and shaped and directed. So are we doing that with the word of God? That's a fundamental question any healthy church has to ask. Or is, well, sure, we have the Bible in our church. I had the privilege of handing out Bibles to the second graders in Sunday school last Sunday. Believe it or not, I love doing that. I don't think they appreciated as fully as I did what was happening as I gave them their first probably full Bible unless mom or dad had bought them one that they'd ever possessed. And in the front I signed it and said, I hope you will learn to love the word of God, Pastor Rogers. And every second grader should be carrying one of those around. What a privilege to give a child the word of God and think, I hope this child for a lifetime is going to be drawing out of that word that living lesson from God, the gospel itself, and all the things by which the Holy Spirit will shape their lives. Do we prize the Word of God this way? Do we come to it, not just on Sunday morning here, but in classes, in home fellowships, in all the places where we open it up and say, I'm hungry. I need feeding from the Lord, from the riches of His truth. We need to kindle hunger for God's Word. Secondly, also in verse 42, there's a second thing that it says they were devoted to here, and that is the fellowship. There's a bright flame of genuine fellowship in the early church that we certainly admire and would like to see ourselves. The fellowship. Interesting, the direct article, the, is in front of the word fellowship and properly the word prayer. I'll comment on that in a moment. In other words, it's not saying that fellowship is just some kind of a nice feeling you have towards other people and you get together and you have a nice talk. Oh, what a nice person that is. No, it's the fellowship. In other words, a defined group of people inhabited by the Spirit of God and I also am inhabited by the Spirit of God and therefore we belong to a group. The fellowship of believers. By the way, the the word Christian wasn't used yet here. We'll get to that later in Acts. Nobody was called a Christian yet at this point. That came later on as a word of mockery, those Christ people. 
We'll find that later in the city of Antioch. It comes up in Acts. But it's not here yet. They weren't called that. What were they? The fellowship. Those believers. Those people who follow Christ. John, who was present, of course, in this early church, wrote later in 1 John 1.3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is in the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ. I think what John was saying was, we have a particular bond between us on the horizontal level because first and foremost, vertically, we belong to the Father and the Son. And those who have that mutual belonging of union with Christ are therefore in communion with one another. You said that. You professed a belief in that in the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in the communion of the saints. The bonds, invisible yet real, that exist between the people of God who are commonly inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Now we see immediately in this text that it isn't just a word. And by the way, Acts 2.42 is the first occasion of the word fellowship, koinonia, in the New Testament. But it spelled out the effects that this had right away. Verse 45 says, all the believers were together and had all things in common. We wonder, what do they mean, all things or everything? Well, it could mean their thoughts, their aims, their values, their beliefs. But the text goes on to say it was more than that. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone that had need. Now, this was not enforced socialism. This was not a government scheme of share the wealth. This was not rules that you had to follow. If you're going to be a Christian, give up all your money and sell all your property. There was no enforcement about it. It was completely spontaneous. This was people looking at one another, and maybe here's a wealthy tradesman who's doing quite well, has a nice home and some money socked away, and he sees that his brother in Christ that he's gotten to know, that he prays with, is without a job and and has fractured his arm and can't very well get a job because he's a laborer. And he says, my brother has a need. I could help with that. I'll sell those 10 acres I have outside of town. I don't need those. And God's people spontaneously took on help one to another, sharing in, literally sharing their lives with each other. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I wish all of you could see how that same kind of thing operates always in our congregation. You can't because there are confidential needs involved. But a half a dozen of us throughout the year take the twenty-five or $30,000 that you give every Thanksgiving season at a special benevolence offering and distribute it carefully to people who have real needs in our midst. It's kind of a thrilling thing to do. Yes, we put them to the test. We don't coddle a lazy person who just won't work. And we want to see what they're doing to help themselves and and what's going on and what got them in that fix. But we're also compassionate and generous on your behalf. And if that didn't have to be confidential, I would really wish all of you could see what happens as God's people are sharing in resources that really help one another. There's a story I can never forget that I came across in the newspaper years ago and I clipped it and kept the clipping. It was so memorable and I can't forget the woman's name either. It's something that happened in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts in 1993 to a woman whose name was Adele Gaburi. 
Adele Gaburi will always live in my mind as the person who never experienced any fellowship. The true story was that she owned a little home there in Worcester. Elderly woman, a bit of a recluse, poor health, no known relatives. But people would see her, totter out to her mailbox, and they, they'd say hello, you know, in that kind of reserved way that neighbors do who don't really know each other. And one day they didn't see Adele doing that anymore, and one neighbor finally said to another, well, I haven't seen Adele. Do you know what? Oh, I think she's in a nursing home. Oh, okay. And it went around the neighborhood that Adele was in a nursing home. The mailman kept putting mail in the box until the box was packed tight, and he finally said, stop delivery. She's not getting her mail. The utilities stayed on for a little while, but then they were shut off because they weren't getting paid. The lawn kept growing, and the neighbor next door who was proud of his own lawn didn't like having tall weeds next to him, so he thought, well, I better mow this lady's yard. I don't know why she's not doing it anymore, and he mowed the yard. And amazingly, this went on for years until the day came that the police, for some reason, finally were called and broke in and found the skeletal remains of Adele Gaburi on her kitchen floor. They said her arm was reached out like this and there was a telephone two feet away. Pretty tragic. Adele tried to get fellowship when she was stricken with an apparent stroke that killed her. But the sad thing was there was nobody in fellowship to even care to look in her window or come and break down a door or do something to come alongside Adele. That, folks, can happen in churches, and it must not. We must give ourselves to be opposed to that at all costs. We must connect with one another. We must make these efforts to reach across the aisle, the community, the neighborhood, whatever it is, to embrace people who are in Christ. What a blessed variety of people we have in this sanctuary. Some folks who've only lived in the United States a very short time, to whom this is really a strange place. What a joy it is to embrace them and welcome them. Many of you have lived in Lancaster County all your life, some only a short time. Different economic backgrounds, different ethnic and racial backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. What binds us together anyway? Fellowship. The bonds of being in union with Jesus Christ are truly, truly remarkable. May we exploit those, exercise those, pursue those, so there are no Adele Gaburis in our immediate midst. You know, the watching world saw Christians relating to each other, and later on in Acts they said, Behold, how those people love each other. They never saw that before. You know, the the ancient world was just as much a dog-eat-dog place, maybe more so than our world today. No social safety net for people then. You were poor, you probably died. You starved. You were a widow and you didn't have any means put away or a son to move in with. You were in big trouble. Believe me, no Medicare, no Social Security. But see how those people love each other. Can we strive to see that that's said about us today? Finally today, a third principle here. 
and it's also in Acts 2.42, to see the bonfire of joyful worship in the presence of God. We read about the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the breaking of bread, there's a lot of discussion about this. Does this just mean having potluck suppers and meals in each other's houses, or does this mean the Lord's Supper? And one person says it means the Lord's Supper and that alone, and this person says, no, it only means informal meals. The answer is both. They both were happening. These people were moving in and out of each other's homes. They were fellowshipping in informal ways, enjoying their relationship, but they were also breaking bread that was the supper of the Lord. And the prayers, isn't that an odd way to say it? If you want to say they were praying, why would you say the prayers? Many say that the implication is that already there were formal services, liturgical times of worship appointed in the temple courtyards where, the, where an apostle would preach or teach and, and then the people would pray and some of the leaders would pray and requests might be brought and so on. And there might be a beginnings of some structure that we have as worship today. It was both, informal and formal, liturgical and casual. But all of it had a current of irrepressible joy. You see that running through it here? As they were breaking bread in their homes, verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and finding favor. It's a thrilling thing to read about. There was no sad sack worship going on here. You know, there was no glum, oh, it's Sunday morning. I guess I got to go up and go to church. Not any of that. They were thrilled to be with one another, but particularly thrilled to devote themselves to the praise of God and to prayer and to hearing his word. And what happened? What was the result? You read it here at the end. God daily added to his church those he was saving Was this God saying, hey, I'm glad you set up a great marketing program and got as many bodies in the doors as you possibly could and entertained them well, and maybe some of them will actually find Christ? Or was this God giving heart attacks all over the place, like I talked about last time? Heart attacks of the Holy Spirit as people recognize Christ as the only way and truth in life. And they gave themselves to him and were saved from their sin and from that whole generation, not by programs, not by manipulation, not by a particularly eloquent preacher, not by a contrived revival. They were saved by the master evangelist who alone saves people, the Lord God himself. And those people were gathered into his church. You know, there was no individualistic salvation in the, in the New Testament age. Not at this time there wasn't. There was nobody saying, oh, I found Jesus, thank you. Now I'll go off all by myself. I don't need all those other people. There was the church, the body of Christ. And the message of salvation was born by the church and people came into the church and lived a common life in praise and joy before God. They were devoted to his word. They were devoted to each other. And they were devoted to God himself. Those are pretty simple fundamentals when it comes down to it. Now, folks, as I close today, you know, we're not a mega church. At least the world wouldn't call us one. We're big, but we're not mega. What am I saying? You know, you heard me throwing rocks at mega churches, perhaps, and saying, aren't we glad we're not like that? Let me tell you, 
one of the things that would be worst for us of all would be arrogance. Or to say, thank goodness we're the perfect church. Thank goodness we're in the perfect denomination. Thank goodness we haven't seen the disruptions of leadership and, and the fratricidal fighting that goes on in so many churches that split up into little pieces all over the place. We could self-congratulate and pat ourselves on the back so hard we'd fall over. I hope I haven't done that this morning. I hope what I'm doing instead is calling all of us in a humble way to say, here are the simple things. Devotion to God's word. Devotion to each other. Devotion to praise and worship. These are the fundamentals of a healthy church. May God help us and preserve us. God who saves and God alone who saves. Be the one who is among us. You know, there's a, that text in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty five that says, here's what the church ought to be. It ought to be a place that when people come in from the outside, Paul writes the Corinthians, and they see you and they hear your praises, they ought to say why God is really among you. That's what we're after. And that comes only from a humble church. A church bowed before her Lord and Master, saying, Lord, keep us healthy. Give us your life that we might praise you and serve you and be a light for you in the midst of a very dark generation. May it be so. Our Father, we pray for your church. We pray for our church and so many others. Not that which wears our denominational name, every church, where Jesus Christ is known, where the word is loved, where the gospel is understood. We pray that your church would have flames, not burning her buildings down, but flames of the Holy Spirit, uniting them in great love of your word, service to one another, and praise and honor for you that would be seen in this generation. People would be drawn not by programs and manipulations and strategies and advertising, but drawn by the reality of what you are doing. Lord God, will you add to your church those you are saving. We want to be careful to give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.